Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And so we just come to you in simplicity of heart, Father, to ask that your Holy Spirit would open your word to us, Father. Reveal Jesus to us, Father. Oh, God, speak to us, Lord, that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened, and that we would be able to walk in a close walk with you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So last week we started part one, which is understanding faith. And so this week it's called part two. And it's doctrinal faith. And just as a quick review of last week, the Greek word for little faith is olgopistos, and it's used five times in the New Testament. And four of those occurrences are found in the Gospel of Matthew. In each occurrence, Christ showed his disciples areas where their faith still lacked the depth and maturity necessary to withstand the rigor, challenges, and the trials of life. Our faith may be strong in specific areas, but Jesus wants our faith to grow and mature in every area of our lives. Somebody once said that the gospel, the the Christian church in in the West, is a mile wide and an inch deep. But God wants our faith to be deep and secure. Each time Jesus confronted them, his disciples, with their weak faith, he included the rebuke, O you of little faith, and that he did that four times in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus' motivation for pointing out their little faith was not to humiliate or to discourage them, but to help them recognize aspects of their faith that needed strengthening. He wanted them to develop an unshakable faith, enabling them to stand strong in the face of whatever trials, hardships, or uncertainties life would bring. From the four times that Jesus says, Oh, you have a little faith, in the Gospel of Matthew, we can identify four things that attack our faith and God's strategy to overcome them. And there are four aspects to faith, and each one releases God's glory. There's creative faith. This is the power of faith. It's the glory of his name. Then there's doctrinal faith, and that's the truth of faith, and that's the glory of his word. Then there's persevering faith, And this is the strength of faith. And this is the glory of his life. And then there's God-conscious faith. This is the reality of faith. The glory of his presence. The first time Jesus rebuked his disciples with the words, Oh, you have little faith, is found in Matthew 6.30. Now, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This rebuke relates to creative faith and warns against those things that oppose receiving God's provision and resist God working miraculously in our lives. Through creative faith, God's provision is released in our lives, whether through miracles, healings, or his divine supply for those areas where we are experiencing lack. It is evident from reading the context of the reproof, O you of little faith, in Matthew chapter 6, that it contains a warning against worry. Of the six times the Greek word for worry is used in the Gospel of Matthew, five of those occurrences are found in Matthew chapter 6 in relationship to OU of little faith. 
Worry is the enemy that attacks us so we're unable to operate in creative faith. Worry paralyzes us so we're unable to step out in faith and trust God for his provision. So that, that's what we did last week. We spoke about worry and about how to step out in creative faith to see God answering our prayers, to see people healed, to see God providing in areas where we have lack. The second aspect of faith is doctrinal faith. The opposition that comes against doctrinal faith is error of doctrine. Doctrinal faith releases the glory of his word. When we understand and apply God's word correctly to our lives, then the glory of his word is manifest for the entire world to see as they witness the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ at work within us. In other words, when you see someone whose life was messed up and they follow the Lord, they receive Christ, and they begin to apply God's word and their lives are changed, somebody meets them later and says, what happened to you? And they see that their lives have been changed and they're godly and where they were struggling, when they were failing, where they were a mess, all of a sudden there's stability and strength. And they're uh, witnessing the glory of his word. When we, have, when we have wrong doctrine, it brings confusion and disgrace to God's word. Error of doctrine has often caused schisms and divisions in the body of Christ, sometimes resulting in the formation of cults. Error of doctrine can result in many false teachings from legalism to justifying sinful and destructive lifestyles. Error of doctrine has caused some Christians to do terrible things in the name of Christ, from the Crusades to cults like Jim Jones and David Koresh. You know, in the Middle Ages, what did they do? They had witch burnings. What was happening? Error of doctrine. They were superstitious and they were fearful and they misunderstood God's word totally. And many people were murdered, even horrifically, by people who, in the name of Christ, did things because they had error of doctrine. Some of the leaders and pioneers of the reform movement were guilty of anti-Semitism, persecuting, even killing those who did not agree with the religious views. I remember Harvey one time was telling me that he was uh, speaking to a Jewish fellow. This is many years ago. And as they're discussing and Harvey sharing his faith a bit, and you know, he said that, you know, Many Christians have persecuted Christians. Many Christians have persecuted Jews. They've killed Jews. They've caused terrible things to happen to Jews. Now, if someone said to you that there are Christians who are murdering Jews and persecuting Jews and hating Jews, what would your response be? Well, you know, sometimes they, we would, people would say, well, they weren't really Christians. But my brother that's, gave the real response. He said, it's true, some of those people were truly Christians. And he says, and it's terrible what they did. It's terrible. And when that man looked at my brother, he said, thank you. You're the first person who said he was a Christian that actually acknowledged that Christians did those terrible things to Jews. I remember uh, when I was first a believer, my dad, um, uh, you know, was upset would be a, a mild term. But anyways... So I was going to university, and so he wanted me to see this one professor who is an Orthodox Jew, who is also a professor of, of Greek um, philosophy. 
So every Monday at lunchtime, I would go from the engineering department to the philosophy department, which is quite a distance, not only in space but in time. But anyways, <laughs> and, um, and I would sit for an hour and he would start to talk to me about Judaism and all the aspects of Judaism and like not. So week after week, and I just sat there nice and quietly. Anyways, but every Sunday night, I would drive to Kitchener and I would meet friends of mine who had led me to Christ and they would disciple me. Now, of course, he knew a lot more of the Bible than I did because he had been a believer two and a half years and I'd been a believer two and a half months. But anyways, in one of these discussions, one Sunday night, he casually just mentioned to me, did you know that Martin Luther was anti-Semitic? And I go, no, I had no idea. And he says, yes, it, just because a person is a Christian doesn't mean they understand things properly, do things properly. And I go, thank you. Anyways, the next day, Monday, I went at noon again to this man's office and sat down there. And as I sat down, one of the first things he said to me, he said, did you know that Martin Luther was anti-Semitic? And I looked at him and said, yes, I did. He was so shocked. He was so shocked. He did not know what to say. He was ready to attack me. He was saying, aha, you see, you think these are Christians, but they hate the Jews. They're killing the Jews. And now you're associated with them. But he couldn't say a word. Now, if he asked me one more question, I would have been totally lost. But he was so, over, he was so flabbergasted that he, he lost his composure, just didn't know what to say, and that was one of the last times I met him. But see, that was God's supernatural protection in that. But we have to be aware that some of the reformers were responsible for horrible things. Some Christians in the reform movement who held to the doctrine of infant baptism persecuted and even killed Christians who taught adult baptism or believer's baptism. The real root of the problem which caused such violent behavior was not the doctrine of baptism, but their view of God. They saw themselves as acting on behalf of God, whom they wrongly perceived as an angry and vengeful God. They tried to stamp out what they perceived as heresy by whatever means necessary. They acted more like Old Testament judges than New Testament Christians. In history of the church, we can read how certain Christian leaders lashed out in anger, persecuted, and even killed their opponents. The heart of the issue wasn't their character flaws and fleshly impulses, but their wrong doctrine, which prevented them from seeing their motivation and behavior as sinful. Their wrong doctrine actually encouraged their sinful attitudes and harsh and oppressive actions. If they had correctly understood God's word, they would have realized that the condition of their hearts were, was wrong they would have been convicted by the Holy Spirit of their fleshly impulses and would have sought God to help them change and free them so they could produce the fruit of the Spirit. So you see that. The issue wasn't character flaw. The issue was they thought they were doing the right thing. We need to come against those who have heresy. We need to kill them. We need to oppress them. That was their image of God. And so even though they had character flaws of anger and hostility and, and all that, but the real problem was their doctrine actually reinforced that behavior. That was the problem. Some Christians downplay the importance of doctrine, not realize, realizing that correct biblical doctrine 
provides a correct and accurate image of how we are to relate to him, how we're to relate to others, and how we're to live. See, doctrine is not something for people who go to Bible college. Doctrine is necessary for every Christian because doctrine gives us the right image of God, the right image of how we are to relate with God, and the right image of how we relate to others, and the right image of how we're to live. That's called doctrine. In Apostle Paul's three pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, he specifically addressed doctrine 16 times and emphasized the importance of having healthy doctrine and how to guard against wrong doctrine. 16 times. Paul specifically mentions doctrine in those three pastoral epistles. An example of his 1 Timothy 4.6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. So we see the importance of doctrine and healthy doctrine. Matthew chapter 16 contains another instance of Jesus rebuking his disciples with the words, O you of little faith. In this chapter, Jesus addressed the importance of doctrinal faith and being watchful against error of doctrine. So let's start to read Matthew 16, starting at verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and tested him, asking that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, It is because we've taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not say to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. At the beginning of this chapter, the Jewish religious leaders asked Jesus for a sign from heaven. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Jesus responded by rebuking them for asking for a sign by calling them wicked and unfaithful. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Even though Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and Sadducees for seeking a sign, it is recorded that Jesus performed many signs and miracles so people would believe in him. John 20 verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So if Jesus performed many signs and miracles so people would believe, why did Jesus rebuke the Jewish leaders for asking for a sign from heaven? The Pharisees and Sadducees were not seeking a sign so they could believe in Jesus. They were looking for an excuse to disprove him and validate their unbelief. That is why Jesus referred to them as wicked and adulterous, unbelieving and unfaithful. See, their seeking was not help us believe. It's they were trying to stumble him so he could validate their unbelief. When G, the Jewish religious leaders asked for a sign from heaven, Jesus pointed to the sky. And he said, you know how to tell the weather, so why can't you discern the sign of the times? He said this, hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the sign of the times. Jesus was telling them, it is obvious from both the law of the prophets and from Jesus' own ministry, that he was a promised Messiah. However, they refused to believe him. In fact, if you study the book of Daniel, in Daniel's 70 weeks, you can actually calculate when the Messiah would come. Because each one of those, it gives you the date when the 70 weeks are to start. But 70 weeks is not 70 days, 70 weeks of days, it's 70 weeks of years. And so you can actually do that calculation, but we won't go into that today. But in other words, it was very apparent. He said, Show us a sign from heaven. He points to the sky and says, well, you know how to tell the weather. Can't you understand that the sign's already been given? Then Jesus told them the only sign that they would be given. And no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? It is the sign of the cross. Jonah is a prophetic type of Christ. Jonah depicts Christ being in the tomb for three days and nights and his glorious resurrection. There's another aspect of the sign of Jonah which the Jewish religious leaders loathed to acknowledge. God sent Jonah to bring salvation to a Gentile nation and not just any Gentile nation but one of Israel's worst enemies. In God's plan, Jesus came to save both Jews and Gentiles. 1 Timothy 2 Three, and this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, when he said the sign of Jonah, not only did he speak about his burial and resurrection, he was saying that this gospel is going out to all the nations, even to those that are your enemies, even those who despised you. I want to save them all. The Jewish Religious leaders refused to receive the only sign that could bring salvation to them, Christ's sacrificial death and glorious resurrection. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirits, but the Pharisees confess both. The Sadducees believed their existence ended with the earthly life. They didn't believe in the resurrection and consequently didn't see their need for salvation. In contrast, the Pharisees saw themselves as righteous and didn't see their need for a savior. So one didn't see the need for salvation and the other one didn't see their need for a savior. 
Jesus, three days in the tomb and his resurrection would be a sign to the Sadducees of their wrong doctrine concerning the resurrection and a sign to the Pharisees that Jesus was their promised Messiah whom they needed. There was another Jewish leader in the Old Testament who, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, refused to accept a sign from God so he could believe. King Ahaz, king of Judah, who ruled Judah from 732 to 716 BC. Judah was facing many enemies who threatened the kingdom, but God had promised through the prophet Isaiah that he would deliver them. However, King Ahaz had to put his trust in God for this to happen. Therefore, God offered to, King, to Ahaz any sign at all, as deep as the depths of earth or as high as the heavens above, so his faith in God would stand. Isaiah 7.10, moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depths or the height above. In other words, God said to this king, he says, you know something? Ask for any sign at all. You want this mountain to be moved there to there? Whatever you want, ask a sign, and I will give it to you so you will believe the word I have spoken you is true. Wow. However, Ahaz responded by declining to ask for a sign. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor, I, nor will I test the Lord. Ahaz, if Ahaz had asked for a sign, it would have tested him and not God. While on the surface, his response sound, sounded very noble, it was rooted in deep unbelief and rebellion. Then he said, hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary God also? Ahaz's true motivation in not asking for a sign was that he did not want to fully trust and submit to the Lord God of Israel since he was involved in idol worship. See, he was involved in idol worship. So when he said, I won't test God, what he really said is, I don't want a sign because if God does a miracle, that means I have to repent and give up all my idols. See, it was rooted in wickedness, but it made it look like it was a good motive. Oh, I don't want to test God. Since Ahaz refused to ask for a sign, God himself chose the sign that would be as high as the heavens and reach down to the depths of the earth. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign that God would give would be his son, Jesus Christ. Anyone who had received this sign would be saved. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's the sign, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus, the son of God, came down from heaven and was born of a virgin. He lived the perfect life as a son of man, and he died on the cross for the sins of all mankind. He then descended into the depths of the earth, then after three days he rose again from the dead and ascended to the, right, to the heights of heaven to be once again seated at the right hand of the Father. The sign of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son called Emmanuel, meaning God with us, is the sign that extended to the heights of heaven and descended to the depths of the earth. It is the sign of Jonah that the Pharisees and Sadducees were given and which they needed to receive and believe if they would be saved. So he did give 
the highest sign that God Almighty came to the earth and then died first and went to the depths of hell and rose again and is seated back in the right hand of God. That is the sign that he gave Ahaz. This was the same sign given at the birth of Christ and the shepherds rejoiced in it. The sign of the Son of God coming down from heaven to be born in a human form, a helpless baby lying in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes. Luke 2.10 Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That was the sign that God had come from heaven and come to the earth. When Jesus and the disciples left and went to the other side, he warned them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus' disciples totally misunderstood the true meaning of his warning. They thought he was concerned about having enough bread for sandwiches. Verse 7, they reasoned among themselves, it is because we've taken no bread. There I could imagine saying, listen, what do we do? We have all this pastrami but no bread. How can we make a good pastrami sandwich? Maybe the disciples thought we have no bread and we might be forced to ask bread from the Pharisees and Jesus wouldn't want us to eat their bread. He thought Jesus don't like, doesn't like us to eat the Pharisees' bread. But it wasn't about bread at all. As the disciples were thinking that Jesus was concerned about because they had brought, hadn't brought any bread with them, Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Then Jesus then brought to their remembrance God's faithfulness. The disciples were thinking and acting as if God was not involved in every detail of their lives. They began to think that Jesus was thinking, about the, same, thinking the same way that he was and that he was concerned about what they would eat. In other words, they're thinking, you know, their, their theology, their doctrine of God was very limited. Well, God helps us in the big things, but the day-to-day things, well, we're on our own. And they thought, well, Jesus must be thinking the same way. And then Jesus told them, Verse 9, do, not, do you not yet understand and remember the loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? No, the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? He says, remember when you just need a little bit of food? God provided exactly what you needed and he provided an exactly the fr- excess so you have for tomorrow. Don't you remember? In other words, he's saying, don't you realize that God is there to meet every one of your needs and he wants to be involved in everything you experience, every detail. One of the signs of error of doctrine is having a limited or distorted view of God. Error of doctrine can cause us to see God as a distant or disinterested in the details of our lives. So if you sometimes think, well, I mean, I'm just dealing with all these problems Where's God in this? You have error of doctrine at that moment 
Because God's word says that I am there with you. I'm always with you. I want you to learn to abide in me and I want my words to abide in you. That is proper doctrine saying, God, even when I don't feel like you're here, you are with me and you're here to guide me in every detail. I can trust you. We can begin to think in very carnal and self-seeking ways when we forget that God is always with us and is interested in every detail of our lives. You know, when things just don't work out sometime, instead of thinking, why is this happening? We should say, why is this happening? What are you trying to teach me? I just like to take notes on myself. Then Jesus redirected the disciples' attentions to understand that the words he spoke reflected spiritual truths. Verse 11. How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples are so caught up in thinking and seeing everything from the natural point of view, they completely misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied Jesus' words. When we have error of doctrine, we will misunderstand, misinterpret, and misapply the word of God to our lives. Because we'll have the wrong filter, and it'll be distorted. When people try to understand the Bible from a carnal point of view, it produces all kinds of erroneous doctrines and conclusions. The word of God can only be understood correctly and applied to our lives in a life giving way through the Holy Spirit because, John 6, 63, it is a spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. One of the causes of error of doctrine is trying to understand God, the word of God using carnal or natural mind, minds devoid of the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know, there, there are in, in most universities have, have a department about biblical studies, but they're not Christians. And the people, they can read Hebrew, they can read Greek, they can read Aramaic, they understand grammar construction, they understand history, and they don't understand God's word. Isn't that amazing? But you get a little five-year-old who understands God's word enough to be saved. And you have these people that are so intellectual, but they're not receptive to the Holy Spirit, so they're misunderstanding, misinterpreting, and misapplying God's word. Since Jesus warned against the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, a good question is to ask, what does leaven represent in the Bible? Le leaven represents the fermentation process which causes bread to rise. In the Bible, leaven generally represents sin or corruption, which is why the Old Testament laws forbade leavened bread, leavened bread to be offered as a sacrifice. Exodus 23, 18. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. Matthew 13, 33 Another parable Jesus spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. 
Not every reference in the Bible to leaven is negative. It is important to read the context to understand its meaning. Jesus exhorted his disciples to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He wasn't telling them to emulate the wicked behavior of the ungodly, described as serpents. He was exhorting them not to be naive and gullible. Right? So when you read that, he's not saying, oh yeah, you know, be crafty and deceitful as, no, don't be naive and gullible. You know, it's unfortunate that many times Christians are gullible and naive. Do you realize that? You know, one thing that drives me crazy is that sometimes Christians are so gullible that they don't think. There was one person who wanted to raise millions of dollars for his private jet. Millions of dollars. And you know something? And Christians gave him millions of dollars for his private jet. I go, if you, if you want to be more comfortable, just fly business. Or maybe first class, but a million, multi-million dollar private jet, and millions and millions and millions of dollars came in from Christians, and I think, give your head a shake. Be as wise as serpents. Don't be gullible. Be discerning. Be discerning. And what this does, it hurts the gospel. It hurts the gospel because the unbelievers aren't dumb. They're going, these Christians are naive. They can't see through this. That's why it says, be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. Don't become jaded, but don't be foolish either. Anyways, that's nothing to do with his message, but I'm just... <laughs> so some of the attributes of 11 are neutral and can be used either in a positive or a negative sense. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal. Although... Leaven is hidden and invisible. Its effects are far-reaching. In terms of the kingdom of heaven, leaven is hidden when a person is born again. It may not immediately be apparent to an outside observer the wonderful and glory of the new birth and the new life of Christ that now resides in the spirit of the unbeliever. The moment a person receives Christ and puts his faith, their faith in, in Christ, at that some, something amazing has happened. The life of Christ, the Son of God, has come and joined with their spirit. They're born again. They're a new creation. It is hidden there. It is hidden, but it, will, it has far-reaching effects. And even though outwardly somebody wouldn't notice the difference, but inwardly now the divine nature of God is in their spirit. It's hidden, just like leaven when it's first in the dough is hidden. In terms of sin and corruption, leaven is a picture of those desires and motives, motivations hidden in a person's heart that are not always visible to the casual observer. Sometimes you meet people that are so nice and so polite, but in their heart is only sin and evil. You know, uh, you know psychopaths? You know a psychopath? They have no conscience. And you know one of the professions psychopaths do well in? And this is not a joke. Politics. I'm not saying every politician is a psychopath, <laughs> but I'm saying some are. And the reason they can do it is they can be so nice to you, even in their heart they have no, they're totally against you, but it will not phase them. There's leaven there, and it's hidden, but it's destructive. Till all was leavened. Leaven will eventually permeate, invade, and transform every portion of the dough. Likewise, leaven in terms of the kingdom of heaven. The life of Christ in each believer is vibrant and alive 
and if allowed to grow, will transform our lives completely in every area for the glory of God. Isn't that wonderful? When you're born again, the life of Christ is in you. And if you will just yield to the Holy Spirit, if you will just start walking with God, it's like that leaven will grow and it will overtake every aspect of you, spirit, soul, body. You will be filled with the glory of God. It's like that leaven. It just keeps going and going and going. That's why it says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven till all is leavened. Likewise, leaven in terms of sin and corruption are the hidden things of the flesh, if left unchecked, will corrupt and defile every area of our lives, every relationship, and destroy everything good that God has planned for our lives. In other words, if there's sin and you leave that sin alone, that sin will also multiply and it will grow and it will take and it'll defile your whole life. So you can see the concept of leaven those characteristics are neutral. They can be applied to godly things or applied to ungodly things. Galatians 5.4 You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law have fallen from grace. In Galatians, Apostle Paul warned believers against trying to keep the law and seeking being justified by our works. He said such doctrine actually brings a wedge in our relationship between us and Christ and hinders us from being able to access the grace of God by which we need, can li live truly righteous lives. Why is that? When you're trying to be good on your own, you're focused on yourself. But when you say, God, Jesus, I need to depend totally on you, your relationship with God would just grow and grow and grow. Galatians 5 verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persecution does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul continued by describing the teachings that one needs to, be, to keep the law and observe the feast and Sabbaths as leaven. He said, if you are trying to teach that you need to keep the law and the feasts of the Old Testament, that is actually leaven. That's actually leaven. Some people don't like that. They say, well, what, you know, but I'm saying that's what Paul said. I remember, I, I've shared this testimony before, but it's, it's like uh, one time I was having lunch with this fellow. He was a, they're both believers, him and his wife, but his wife was Jewish, he was not. And, and so as we're having this discussion, he mentioned about keeping the Sabbath and, and all that stuff. And, I, and I, I said, well, I don't keep the Sabbath. And he looks at me and he goes, I'm surprised we're having this conversation. And I said, so am I. And then you know what he said? He said, but I know what Paul wrote in Galatians. He said, but Galatians was, one of the, was the first apostle, epistle that Paul wrote. And many Bible scholars believe that was actually Paul's first epistle. So you know how he explained what, what Paul wrote in Galatians? Very simply. He says, Paul was wrong. He made a mistake. I go, wow. And then he asked if he could minister in our church. I don't have to explain to you how I answer that. Like I'm thinking, that's leaven. It was so much leaven that he would want to discount part of the word of God to hold on to his belief. Paul, Apostle Paul warned them not to even dabble in such doctrines because they, before they know it, legalism and confusion in regards to the law will contaminate 
Your entire spiritual life, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. I have known Christians who've gotten so leavened by the law that they actually renounced Christ and became Orthodox Jews or or went fully into Judaism. Wow, what confusion. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Apostle Paul described sinful and fleshly desires and lifestyles as leaven. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In verse 6, Paul reminds the believers that even a little leaven will result in their entire lives being corrupted and defiled. Compromise allows both righteousness and unrighteousness to be present in our lives. But in reality, soon every aspect has become contaminated and defiled by sin. In other words, if there's one area that you have sin in your life and you're saying, it's not a big deal, I'll just keep it hidden, it is leaven and it'll grow and it'll defile your entire spiritual life. If you have sin, you're struggling, go and get help, confess your sins, work with the brothers and work with the Holy Spirit and seek freedom. But if you say, it's not a big deal, I'll still continue to dabble in this sin, it's not a real issue, it is leaven, and it will contaminate your whole life until your life is spiritually destroyed. And we've seen Christians who have even been in ministry, who have fallen into terrible sin, and you go, how could that happen? They were even being used by God in evangelism and in miracles and healings. How could they have fallen? There was a little leaven, and they let it grow until it destroyed their ministry and their lives. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. Paul encourages them to remove the leaven that was in their lives and in their souls just as in the reborn spirits they're already unleavened, pure, and righteous. And it says, you are already unleavened. What does that mean? In your spirit, you're already righteous. In your spirit, you're already pure. And even as you are pure in your spirit, through the new birth, through Christ's righteousness. Now, be a new lump in your soul. Be righteous in your soul, in your life. Removing the leaven from our lives is called sanctification as we become free from the power, the control, and the defilement of sin. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Paul then turned to the Old Testament typology of the Passover. The Passover was a feast where all leaven had to be purged. Not even the smallest scrap or remnant could remain in the home. Christ is our Passover sacrifice so we could, be fully, could fully become that unleavened lump, free from every aspect of corruption and sin, spirit, soul, and body. But you know, the Jews today, Orthodox Jews, what they'll do is preparing for the Passover, they will go through the whole house and clean all the cupboards and everything, clean everything down so there would be not even a scrap of maybe leaven left maybe in a corner of a cupboard they didn't notice. So they don't just remove the bread. They go and they clean everything out to make sure that there's nothing left. But it's a process. The same thing with us. It's, it's not wrong that we struggle. You know, it's not wrong that we have things that we're working through and, and we're still finding places where we're, we're failing. We just come to God and say, God, take me through the 
cleansing process. As the Lord starts to clean and, and seeking accountability and, and praying and, and looking to God. And slowly the Holy Spirit will begin to seek and cleanse those areas bit by bit. Until we become that new lump in our lives, in our souls. Till we become free from that. That's a process. But the problem is when we think there's sin it's not an issue. We'll cover it up. That's when it grows and grows and grows. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, both the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. While leaven is depicted as malice and wickedness, unleavened bread reflects a life that is pure, sincere, and where only truth is present. So the next question to ask is, what exactly was the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Because Jesus didn't say this is what it was specifically. So what was the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Jesus' warned, warning to his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees indicated there was a real danger that they could become infected by the same error of doctrine brewing in the Jewish religious leaders. One of the best ways to recognize leavened doctrine is to know what is unleavened doctrine. A short time after Jesus warned the disciples against the leaven of the Jewish religious leaders, he asked his disciples a question. Who do men say that I am, to say that I, the Son of Man, am? Their response reflects the leavened doctrine of men's opinions. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. That's leaven. Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a teacher. See, that's leaven. Then Jesus asked the disciples the most important question. Who do you say that I am? Peter's response is a wonderful example of unleavened doctrine. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Unleavened doctrine teaches the preeminence and centrality of Jesus Christ. That's it. Unleavened doctrine teaches the preeminence and centrality of Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. He's the rock. All those things, that is the key for unleavened doctrine. Then Jesus told them the source of unleavened doctrine. Blessed are you, Simon, son, uh, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The revelation of Jesus Christ in a pure and unleavened doctrine comes directly from God. It is God who provides us with saving faith and who draws us to his Son, Jesus Christ. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. In John 12, 32. And if I, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men or all people to myself. Unleavened doctrine will draw everyone to Christ. However, the Pharisees and Sadducees sought to draw men unto themselves. Matthew 25, verses 5 to 7 in the, uh, the Living Translation. Everything they do is done for show. They act holy by wearing on their arms little prayer boxes with scripture verses inside and by lengthening the memorial fringes of their robes. And how they love to sit at the head of tables, uh, table at banquets and in the reserved pews in the synagogue. How they enjoy the def deference paid when on this, them on the street and to be called rabbi and master. 
The disciples were in danger of falling to the same error of doctrine as the Pharisees by becoming defiled and leavened by selfish ambition, competitiveness, and pride. Luke 9:46. Then a dispute arose among them, Jesus' disciples, as to which of them would be the greatest. See that leaven? What, how's God going to use me? What, what's my ministry? How great am I going to be? And Jesus had warned them that that leaven had to be dealt with. And it's so easy for us to fall into that. It's so easy to fall into that and think it's all about us. You know, and one of the, the greatest dangers is public ministry. Public ministry, because, oh, that's such a good sermon. I, I appreciate when people encourage me, but it's like you start to believe your own press. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. Like, big trouble. Because remember, unleavened doctrine is where Jesus lifted up, and all men are drawn to Jesus. If the leaven of selfishness and self-promotion had not been uprooted and cleansed from the apostles, it would have been disastrous for the early church. But thanks be to God that he purged his apostles from this leavened bread. Could you imagine? This leaven. Could you imagine? After Pentecost, they're all filled with the Spirit and they're praying for people and people are getting healed. Pretty soon, you have, you know, Peter's ministry incorporated, and you have Paul's ministry incorporated, and you have Thomas's ministry. Imagine that would have happened, right? That they're all gone in their own way. In fact, if you study revivals, many times revivals collapse because the leaders of the revivals all begin to have their own ministry. And before you know it, it's gone, it's dissipating. You go, what happened? It's the leaven of the Pharisees. They began to draw men to themselves, maybe unknowingly. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, and so that's something we all have to be careful of as God uses, praise God that he uses us so we, wouldn't, so we do not shrink back from being used. But what we need to be is we need to be able to make sure that we look to Jesus and we get others to look to Jesus. <laughs> Apostle Paul, when he wrote in the to the Corinthian church, addressed and brought correction to the leaven that was beginning to creep in. Some Christians were being tempted to be drawn to men instead of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 12 and 13. Now I say this, that each of you say, I am of Paul, or I am of Paulus, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Christ crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Many times sectarianism is produced because we take our eyes off of Jesus and put them onto a person. You know, it says that Paul said there was a thorn in the flesh given to me that he wouldn't be lifted up with pride. And then God showed him and he said, take this thorn in the flesh from me. And then he said, my grace is sufficient for you for my grace is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul then re 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 fully understood, ah, if I come across like I have it all together, and I have no difficulties, then people will look to me and it'll invalidate my ministry. Then God can't use me as powerful as he is. Ah, but when I have this weakness, that means I gotta depend on God in this weakness, in the thorn in the flesh, and won't go into what I think it is, but in this weakness, he's looking to Jesus always and he's looking to him. And so because of that, his eyes are on himself and his eyes are on what people are saying about him. They're on Jesus and people then are looking to Jesus saying, that bald, short Jewish guy, What's this all about? 
They go, there must be really a God for God to, God to use a guy like that. And so that's what it's about. It's in our weakness that we have unleavened doctrine that lifts up Jesus. The second aspect of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and which is closely linked to the first aspect of leaven, is legalism. Legalism means adhering to the letter of the scriptures, but losing the spirit and the intent. 2 Corinthians 3.6, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Legalism makes the scriptures harder to keep or lessens their real meaning. Keeping the letter breaks the spirit and intent and produces a lifeless gospel that has no power to save or change people's lives. If you want to know if you have legalism or if you have unleavened doctrine, are your lives changing? Are you coming to a place of freedom from fear and worry and sin and pride? Are we growing? If we're growing in godliness, we know we have unleavened doctrine. But if we're on the same rut, there's something leavened about our doctrine. When the Pharisees saw something they didn't agree with in Scripture, they would try to find another Scripture to negate it or interpret it in such a way that, is, that its true meaning was lost. For instance, in Mark 7, 11, But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profits you might, that, that, sorry, whatever profits you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift, uh, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother, making the word of God of no effect through your traditions which you handed down, and many such things you do. In other words, sometimes there's a scripture, we just don't like that scripture. But you know something? That's what it says. You know, Martin Luther, you know, he had some good revelation. He understood salvation by faith without works, right? But he didn't understand everything properly. He had leaven in his doctrine. And you know what he said is he hated the epistle of James. He hated it. He called it a straw gospel, or straw epistle, I should say. He said, it's straw. Why would, he would want to have ripped it out if he could have. Why did he say that? Because he goes, faith that works is dead. He didn't want to hear about that. Oh, it's only by faith. But it is by faith that we're saved. But it's only when by faith we obey God does our lives change. As we put our faith into action, it produces good works, and then it changes. If you're not walking in faith, you're not obeying in faith, you're not going to see the life-changing power of the gospel to transform you. See, good works don't make a Christian, but Christians are to make good works. Legalism makes something that is not doctrine into doctrine. Legalism transforms the gospel into a list of rules and rituals. In other words, sometimes people make something saying, you can't do this or something, whatever. but it, the Bible doesn't say that. If the Bible doesn't say it, don't make it in the doctrine. If the Bible doesn't say it, don't make it in the doctrine. But what the Bible says, then that is doctrine. Legalism makes it appear we are seeking God when we're in fact our hearts are far from God. You know how we can tell to have legalism? Because we're more interested in fighting about doctrine than having Christ lifted up. We're more important about being right and shaming the gospel instead of having peace and lifting up Jesus. 
In Matthew 15, 7 to 9. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, for in, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They made doctrine which was not doctrine, and their hearts were far from God. John 6, 48. I am the bread of life. Jesus is the true and unleavened doctrine that produces holiness, life, true unity, and love. Isn't that wonderful? I am the bread of life. He is that unleavened bread. He is that pure doctrine. You know, when you read the scriptures, read them until you can hear Jesus say those words. There's some parts of scripture that I'm reading, I still can't hear Jesus say the words, which means I need to hear, keep reading that and waiting on God till I can hear Jesus say those words. Can I hear Jesus say those words, whether in Genesis or in Revelation? Can I hear Jesus say those words? And when I can, I now know I'm understanding what they mean and how to apply it. E. Stanley Jones said this, Asking what we believe divides. Asking who we believe gathers. Isn't that wonderful? Asking what we believe divides, but asking who we believe gathers. When we focus on Christ, we don't have to tell people and, and, and explain to them how to live in terms of, you got to do this, you got to do that. As we look to Jesus, we'll want to be holy. We will want to do things that are pure. We'll want to do things that honor God because our focus is on Jesus. But when we ask what you believe, it's, I think that's right, I think that's wrong, I think you're wrong, I think I'm right. See what happens? But when we say, who do you believe? Then all of a sudden, our desire is, I want to live a holy life. I want to live a holy life, not just outwardly, but in my heart. Purity without Jesus produces a list of do's and don'ts. Freedom without Jesus produces an excuse to sin. Teaching authority without Jesus produces oppressive authoritarianistic leadership. And teaching on blessings without Jesus produces greed and selfishness. So all those things, purity, freedom, authority, and blessings are all scriptural. But if Jesus is not lifted up, they become distorted and perverted and lifeless and even destructive. But when Jesus is the center, then all of a sudden, we can begin to live a holy life. We can begin to walk and grow so the life of Christ can grow in us and the leaven of sin can start to be cleansed and removed bit by bit, step by step. It's a process of cleansing. But we have to desire and the way we desire it is not because we're ashamed and not because we're afraid of being exposed, but because our eyes are on Jesus. And say, God, I don't want to have anything in my heart or life that grieves your Holy Spirit or brings shame to your name. That is the motivation. That is the motivation. So we're going to turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness, Father, for your faithfulness, for your love, Lord.
Father, we want to live lives that bring glory to Jesus. We want to live lives that surrender to you, Lord. I thank you that your grace is sufficient, Lord. Oh, God, we all have failings. We all have weaknesses. But this life is a journey of sanctification. It's a journey where we grow in a relationship with you and grow from glory to glory. We look to you, Father, and I say to him, Lord, just take my life and do with it as you want. Take my life and do with it as you want, Lord. Let me grow more and more in the image of Jesus. I pray for every believer here, Father. That would, that would be our heart's cry. That would be our heart's cry. To look to you and say, I can't fix myself, but Jesus can. We look to Jesus, not in our effort to change, but in the effort of the Spirit of God that changes us. The power of the Holy Spirit, the life of Christ within us, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah.